and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we explore the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Ruth Robertson, a senior fellow here at the King's Fund, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Navina Evans, CBE, now the Chief Workforce and Training Education Officer at NHS England. But I'm sure many of our listeners will also know you through your successful career in the NHS. Looking back to the start of your career, Navina, one organisation was particularly central, the East London NHS Foundation Trust. Starting out as a psychiatrist, you progressed onto a range of roles within the trust, from clinical director and chief operating officer up to chief executive. Throughout your career, we can also trace one key part of your mission, which you've described as working towards the creation of a bigger, more inclusive workforce. I'm really looking forward to reflecting on that journey with you today during the episode. There's a lot for us to discuss. So um, welcome to the podcast, Navina. Thank you, Ruth. Lovely to be here. It's great to be here with you. And I wondered if I could start by asking you a bit about your leadership journey so far. What has that journey looked like? And from your perspective, where did it start? So I I think I have to go back to kind of my childhood, really, because I did not grow up in England. I'm an immigrant. I'm a woman of colour. And I grew up in, in Malaysia. And I remember at the time being really drawn to the idea of altruism and a health service free at the point of delivery, accessible to all. I remember learning about it and it seemed like such an amazing thing, you know, that that existed. I came to school in England and then I went to medical school and then I kind of stayed here and now I am British and I'm very proud to be British. I gave up my kind of Malaysian citizenship to become British. Um, And one of the things that makes me particularly proud about being British is the NHS. And, um, you know, I feel so privileged to have had the opportunity to have influence at so many different levels right the way through my career to get to where I am now. As you said, just to sort of summarize, the key thing for me was always an interest in the power of what people can do social movements, people coming together to make change. That is, I think, what also drew me to psychiatry as a profession um, as well, because it really was about people, behavior, communities um, that can really help, you know, even if you have got a severe illness, mental illness, there's so many other factors that can improve your quality of life. Um, So it's been a kind of theme throughout for me. And how powerful to have had that perspective of seeing the NHS from the outside and admiring it and and then being able to to come and and, and lead and have this as such an important part of your career. Totally. I pinch myself. I seriously do every day. Kind of I wake up and think, is this a dream and it's all going to be over? But it's not. It's real. Um, And it is it is a huge privilege. And I just wonder, as you've been going through your your journey of, of, of leading in the NHS, are there any of those kind of light bulb moments that stand out to you, um, moments of particular learning that have really kind of impacted the way the way you work? Yes, there are definitely. And I think they are all points at which I've had to change my mind, which I always find really interesting. One, I think, is the impact that patients 
and their families had on my thinking about, you know, and I can share with you um, a story of how uh, we, we would have case conferences where we would bring together all the professionals involved in the care and support for a patient and their family. And um, it is a, a patient who I was really close closely working with for a number of years. And at that case conference, she and her mother said to the group, I really don't understand my treatment. I don't understand what the you know diagnosis, the problem, the treatment. And I was really taken aback because I'd spent so long with them. And the thing that I realized was that actually I was not speaking or what I was saying, the way I was communicating wasn't making, wasn't connecting. And, you know, that was a real light bulb moment for me to kind of think, well, how come I have had this, you know, close relationship? And yet at that moment in time, they were really quite sort of puzzled and confused about what was going on. Um, and I took that, you know, very personally and really had to think about it. I wonder if I can move on to ask you how you would describe your leadership style. Do, do you think about yourself as having a leadership style? One of the things that um, I've been really lucky in, um, I think, coming from a background in, in psychiatry and um, mental health is the power of reflection. And it's always been incorporated in my training. And I have had um, psychoanalytic training. I have had my own therapy as part of that. And I have always used a, a mentor and a coach, and I've been very lucky in that they have always been people that have not let me sit in a nice, comfortable, cozy space. They've always been people who've pushed me to look at um, at things differently. And actually, one of the enduring habits, I think, is keep asking myself, what can I do differently? Because that it's quite easy to slip into thinking, oh, well, if only that was different and if only so-and-so would behave differently and only if only this organization was doing this and if only they would do that and you externalize things and it's, you know, it's, but actually the only person that I can control is myself. The only behavior that I can really control is myself. So I think for me, the leadership style does kind of kind of keep coming back to if I'm if if it's not connecting, comes back to that story with that patient. If I'm not connecting, what should I do differently? If it's not making sense to people, what should I do differently? That's the first thing I think. The second area for me, I think, is um, I really try hard to constantly be curious and to go into the places that make me feel uncomfortable. And the third is I really want people to feel comfortable in having a dialogue with me. I think really spending time thinking with people, there is always a way. You hinted at this a bit earlier, but I can see that you've had at least a couple of big changes moving from being a doctor to then a, a manager and then most recently from running a trust to developing national policy. Uh, to me, they sound like quite substantial changes yeah. and um, maybe moving away each time from things you're quite personally invested in. Yes. Uh, I wondered if you'd share anything on on how it's been going through those changes and, and, and how you face them? At each stage, yes, you're right. Going from being a clinician to being a manager and then from a clinical manager into being uh, operations. I went into operations. I wasn't a medical director, which would have been the more natural uh, course. Um, at each stage, I think always making a kind of what are the things I need to learn and then never being afraid of asking people to teach me. So when I when I started as um, director of operations and then chief operating officer, 
I had to have lessons from our finance team on sort of, you know, what do you look at every day, every week, every month in your budgets? Um, what are the right questions to ask uh, your operations manager, your beds manager, your, you know, all of those things you just, I just had to, I had to learn. And people are very generous with their time to help you to understand things. And similarly then, you know, when I became a chief executive, learning again, you know, what it means to be an accountable officer, what are my responsibilities, how to be more strategic and not want to fix everything yourself. Um, and then moving into the arm's length body world where you're even you're, I've never been further away from the point of care, which is where I feel really comfortable. So how to, to maintain the connection with the people we serve and that common purpose. And I think that's been really challenging, but also really rewarding in the development of the long-term workforce plan. You know, it's so striking at the moment that you and Amanda Pritchard are both in very senior positions within the NHS. And to have you both as, as role models is, I know, an, an inspiration for many. I was wondering if, if you have any advice you give to people within the NHS who are facing racial or, or gender barriers to career progression. Yeah, of course. Yes, absolutely. It is something I have experienced. And actually, I think I, I think I, I still do. One of the sad things is that you do, you do some, you, you might get used to it, actually, um, or you overcompensate for it. Um, and I think if you speak to a lot of um, um, ethnic minority colleagues, women, people with disabilities, you know, people with protected characteristics, basically, our LGBTQ plus colleagues, um, they will all have stories of, uh, you know, what it feels like. And it's tiring and it's weathering and it's really hard work. However, I do feel, well, from my perspective, I, I have always felt, you know, can't let it get you down. Um, now, that's easy to say, but it's very much part of how I think and how I work every single day. Because I've got to the position I've got to, I've got to use my power and my, my voice. I hope I'm doing that effectively or and, and I can certainly do better. What advice would I give people? The sort of constantly being aware of it, talking about it, helping people to understand, looking for the your allies. Um, now, allyship is interesting. It's not something I believe that people can... Uh, self uh, self assign, but I think that you define who your ally is, and I think they are around us. There are many around us, and I think we should reach out to them and keep going. It's a lot better than it was, but we do have to keep going at it. And and you've written previously about the importance of inclusive leadership. Yes. Um, did your time working in East London shape that outlook? Yes, it certainly did. It, it really did um, shape that outlook. So we talk a lot about inclusive leadership. I think of, of it in a number of ways. There's the kind of the right thing to do, of course, you know, to be inclusive. I mean, it, I can't understand how one could make an argument for not being inclusive. It seems quite strange. But then there's also something about, you know, we need to get the best out of everybody. Um, and equity, diversity, inclusion is the for me, the core of how you get the best out of everybody. You know, if you look at the constitution of the NHS, it's an imperative upon us all to do that. And, you know, again, we have workforce challenges, we have financial challenges, we have to think about 
quality. We have to think about waste reduction. Uh, we have to think about population health and reducing health inequalities. Everything there has a kind of thread of where the solution is. The thread is inclusion, whether it's about patient care, whether it's about access, or whether it's, for me, my focus is our staff, of course. It's just central to everything that we do. But it's hard to do because it requires the kind of ability to, it's the people skills to release that potential, uh, which is why I think it can be a little bit uh, challenging and daunting for all of us. I think we all know recently strikes have led to a lot of conversation about staff well-being and, and workforce yes. retention. Yes. And yes. I just wondered when you were at East London, what did you learn about what works to establish a culture that really encourages people to stay? It feels like something that we, we really need to be focusing on at the moment. Yes. Um, Ruth, uh, so retention forms a big part of the long-term workforce plan. You know, there are three areas that we talk about there, growth and recruitment, retention and reform. And, um, you know, people talk about the leaky buckets. And, and I think absolutely, you know, over the last 10 years, we've trained record numbers, but we have not been able to keep or, or rather people coming in, but there are a lot of people leaving or retiring or wanting to do things differently or, or actually people who are not able to work because they're unwell and, you know, it's the, the environment is very difficult. So actually retention is our probably one of our biggest levers in the workforce plan. It's the most important thing. And in NHS England, we've started to do some work with some exemplar sites around you chunk down, you chunk down what the different interventions could be and you can focus on them in your own organization. So if I go back, and I haven't been in ELFT for a while now, but ELFT, like many other organizations, you kind of decided to have a focused look at what are the things that your staff are telling you will work for them. And I think that's really, really important. What are people telling you works for them? Things like flexible working, really important. Um, and it's what people, you know, some people are telling us they leave and go and join agencies because it gives them flexibility. I mean, that, of course, there's financial, and but flexibility is a big, big part of that. So why can't we recreate that experience for them? It's a manage, management conundrum. It's a huge shift in the way in which you organize your rotors and, you know, your teams and everything, but it's not impossible. And if we don't do it, people will vote with their feet. So, so that's one example. Um, but the other is a sense of belonging and the relationship you have with, you know, people talk about the relationship with their line manager being the most critical thing that makes them stay or leave. The final thing I think I'd say on this topic is, again, we're at a moment now where people want to work differently. And when when we worked on Framework 15, developing the long framework for long-term workforce planning, we spoke to a lot of people who are going to be the future workforce, not people like me who are the kind of workforce of the past, you know, but the future workforce. They tell us they want to work to live, not live to work. We'll return to the episode in a moment. Bringing together leaders from across the health and care system, our 2023 annual conference will explore how to ensure the system works for staff 
and the people who use health and care services. Join us in November to delve into the current and future challenges and opportunities for health and care. Follow the link in the show notes to book your place today. Welcome back. Let me move on then to to focus on your national role and talk a bit about the workforce plan. You must have been extremely busy uh, over recent months and uh, building up to and following the publication of the NHS long-term workforce plan. (laughs) I imagine that's required quite a lot of personal leadership from you to to get it over the line. So huge congratulations. Um, There's been a lot of reaction over the last couple of months and and I wanted to ask you a bit about that. How how do you characterise the response? Is it what you expected? We wanted to make sure, I mean, look, it's it's historic. It's the first ever a workforce plan with kind of numbers looking into the 15 year kind of time frame uh, as well we had a scope we were commissioned to be quite bold and i think we're grateful for that but there were also restrictions so uh, on on the limits for example people are very clear that it doesn't address social care workforce and that is true and and I, I I draw on the experience of being in Health Education England, which I only joined three years ago, and they were, you know, it was part of Health Education England's mandate. Workforce planning was, but uh, my colleagues who were in Health Education England were very clear that it's always been difficult to get anything long term over the line, because it was that there were too many factors, too many sort of factors that got in the way. So, you know, and the fact that we were coming together with NHS England was really important as well. And so we could actually work closer to service, closer to the point of care to make this a reality. I had a, we had a great team. We got lots and lots of people together from different parts of both organisations. We worked with other organisations. We had support from the King's Fund, the Health Foundation, Nuffield, to sort of help to sort of almost like throughout the process, kick the tires on what we were doing and be critical friends and challenge. You know, that was really, really important as well. Um, working with professional bodies, with the education sector, with staff side, I could go on and on and on. So it was a massive piece of work. And it just feels like because the pressure and the realizations to how important workforce is, was such a Everything was aligned, as my father would have said. The stars were all aligned to get this to get this done. So yes, it is a, it's huge, and so many people made it happen. Now it's about delivery, um, and you know, um, almost immediately afterwards, lots of people were asking, you know, what next. So when you asked about the reaction, if it wasn't challenging enough, it wouldn't have caused the whole varied reactions. On the whole welcomed because we've got such a thing. Uh, So that was welcomed. Then looking at the detail, some people were worried about how ambitious it was going to be. Can we deliver? That was a question that was asked. The reform space, of course, reform always makes uh, many of us quite anxious and nervous. So we have to now work on supporting people for whom the reform might impact on them, their maybe professions, uh, the institutions, um, you know, and, and, and it might mean something for them that we have to address. The final thing I'd say is that this is a plan for the people of England. 
and the workforce that we need for the people of England. And I don't remember ever actually being really open about the fact that we train, we grow, we recruit, we retain, we maintain standards for a very specific reason. And that is the care that the people of England receive. So, you know, as an individual, as part of the workforce, that's what we're here to do, to serve. That's the overarching principle. Another key strand in that plan is about the aim to increase staffing and capacity in primary and community services. And and I heard you speak actually at our leadership summit earlier in the year about how you want to be looked after yes. in, in your later years. Yes. Um, and what will work for you in the future. And I just wondered if 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 you would mind sharing a, a bit more about that vision for being looked after in the future and what that means from a workforce perspective? Yeah. So I think if I could summarise, sum it up, I think that, um, again, in the work that we've done on Framework 15, we do address this a bit, looking way into the future and how important it is to have uh, the concept of integrated planning and that we need to start developing scenarios for the future that helps us to think about that. So what will what will services actually look like? What will the demand look like? And what are the potential for services, uh, you know, 15, 20, 30 years? Of course, we can't be absolutely clear. The further out you go in time, the more, the less clarity or less certainty there is. But one thing we know, it's not going to look the same as it is now. And the example I used when I spoke was, you know, I talked about my own multiple conditions, which I will live with when I'm in my 80s. And, you know, I don't want to be in hospital. I don't think I need to be in hospital. Um, And when I die, I want to die at home. Um, And I think that's an unreasonable thing to ask for. Um, And with that in mind, we all know that that kind of shift in service models, in actually our attitudes, our behaviours, but also the compact with our communities will also have to change. Um, so we need to start working on that now. And again, we have a really great opportunity to do that through the ICBs and ICPs in their partnerships with local authorities. So so I think we have to start start with what's the service model going to look like? What's the service plan going to look like? And then from that, we can work backwards. What type of workforce do you need? Uh, Somebody said to me the other day, we're probably training people who go to university now in health and care for jobs that don't even exist yet in 30 years time. I think that's really exciting when you think about the possibility of new roles uh, being developed because innovation, AI, technology might release the, will release the time for care for that human interaction, which will be different from the human interaction we have right now. So that local planning and understanding your local population and being able to potentially predict future demand and work backwards is, is I think, where we really want to go. Brilliant. Thank you. We're coming to the end of our conversation, but I wondered if I could just finish um by asking you a bit of an overall question about the workforce plan, really. It's, it's such a positive shift towards better long-term thinking in yeah. the NHS. What, what do you think is the biggest opportunity it presents for the future of health and care? So I think this workforce plan, it, the opportunity is also the challenge. 
So it's the same thing. Its success will depend on all of the different parts doing their bit and coming together on this really difficult journey. And it will require all of us to be thinking, behaving, and working differently, every single one of us. There's no question in my mind about that. And that, therefore, is in itself a challenge. So the challenge is that that is potentially too difficult to do and that, therefore, we can't. But I think if we can predict um, and have a good risk log and have good mitigations and really constantly keep track of it, and I think we should turn problems into a to-do list. Uh, so that would be my uh, final point. I like to think when I have a list of problems, they become the to-do list. They're not the reason not to do things. That's a fantastic, positive way to um, end the podcast, spinning our problems around and, and, and turning them into a list of areas we need to take action on. Um Thank you so much, Navina. It's been wonderful to talk to you. And I'm just struck by how lucky we are that, that you looked at the NHS from afar and decided you wanted to, to make your career um, part of, 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 of making that service work and improve. So thank you so much. It's all we've got time for today. You can find out more about the NHS long-term workforce plan in our new explainer, which is linked to in the show notes. The show notes for this episode and all the previous episodes can be found at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. And you can get in touch with us via Twitter or X as it's now known. Our account is at the Kings Fund. The producer for this episode was Natalie Cleverly and it has been edited by Bespoken Media. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate and review this episode wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time. 